for the word of the Lord. Shall we just pray? Dear Lord, we do pray that you will speak to us from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm grateful for the opportunity to share some thoughts with you from our reading in Ephesians. I was attracted to this passage because it seems to mix both heaven and earth. But I've since found it really quite challenging. You see, I want my life to be integrated. I don't want to have separate compartments for everyday life and for my Christian faith. It's been said that some Christians are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. But I feel that our passage in Ephesians has, if you like, our head in the clouds but our feet on the ground. And maybe this image sort of captures something of that sense. All I want to do today is just to think about three words. Thanks from verse 16, knowledge from verses 17 to 18 and power verses 19 to 23. But I want to start by thinking about power. It seems to me that in our world it is preoccupied with power. The war in Ukraine is about Russia exerting its military power over its neighbours. I realise that there are historical issues involved, but I can't accept that it's right for one country to bolster its own security by destroying or subjugating its neighbour. But I'm happy to say that I'm naive about history. Ukraine has been prominent in our news, but when Patrick Sukdeo from... Barnabas Fund was in Adelaide early in April. He pointed out that Ukraine was just one of 57 armed conflicts around the world. So that's where one group is trying to subjugate another by power. But power is also a preoccupation in our societies. The 20th century French philosopher Michel Foucault was obsessed with the secret structures of power. He argued that behind every practice, every institution, and even behind language itself lies power. And his goal was to unmask that power and thereby liberate its victims. The English writer Douglas Murray has been tracking how this has been playing out in Western societies. In his book, The Madness of Crowds, he considers the identity politics of homosexuality, feminism, racism, transgenderism. In The Strange Death of Europe, he considers the impact of massive immigration on Europe. And in War on the West, his latest book, he considers the culmination of these movements where many people in the West rubbish or denigrate their own society. Murray identifies the most prominent struggle nowadays is that of racism. Critical race theory was developed over decades in academia with key advocates working to create a movement which would interpret almost everything in the world through the lens of race. This has been bubbling away since the 1970s but it boiled over with the death of 
George Floyd in the US in 2020. Murray notes that as horrible and as callous was the death of George Floyd, there was no evidence to suggest that it was a deliberate racist assault. Nevertheless, it erupted in the Black Lives Matter movement, primarily in the US, but also overseas. Athletes took the knee to indicate opposition to racism and a refusal to honour their national anthem. Critical race theory claims that white people are inherently racist, whether they know it or not. And any attempt to deny being racist is simply dismissed as evidence of inherent racism. The US companies are striving to advertise their anti-racist credentials and employees have been forced to do anti-racism training. So Coca-Cola employees have been forced to undergo training aimed to teach them how to be less white. Schools are similarly teaching young children to feel guilty about being white. These movements have touched Australia as well. There was the Black Lives Movement, or there were Black Lives Movement protest marches even in Australia in 2020. Australian footballers and even cricketers took the knee. And in September 2021, the ABC ran a series, The School That Tried to End Racism. Some of my relatives thought that this was a good idea, but I was rather disturbed because there was no evidence that this school was a hotbed of racism and yet the children were being taught to feel guilty about being white. It was as if the ABC was introducing critical race theory through emotional manipulation. Some places in the US are hotbeds of anti-racist riots and in 2020, uh, Douglas Murray toured Portland in Oregon and he found that every federal building in the state had been attacked or turned into a fortress. Almost every statue and public monument in the city had either been pulled down by rioters or removed by the local authority, even that of Abraham Lincoln. There seems to be a madness tearing America apart. And one wonders what happened to Martin Luther King's dream where he thought about his children that they might one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the colour of their skin but by the content of their character. John McWhorter is a black African-American who recently published a book, Woke Racism. In it he claims that the only way to understand this movement is as a dogmatic religion. You need to abide by the orthodoxy and any contrary opinions must be silenced. Someone like McWhorter, a black African-American, expressing such views is then labelled white or white on the inside. So it seems that black and white become synonyms for good and bad. But the battle of race, over racism is just one of the dogmatic movements at play in our societies. There is the new feminism that considers Germaine Greer is no longer a feminist because she doesn't agree 100% with the new dogma. 
There is transgenderism, which demands affirmative treatment for children who claim they are in the wrong body. That feeling must never be questioned. And yet, Sweden and Finland, two of the most socially progressive countries, are backing away from this model. And so it goes on in an ominous fulfilment of Foucault's theory. I realise that all this paints a very grim picture about the world's preoccupation with power and it demonstrates why I was so challenged by thinking about this passage and Paul's words about power. That power, he said, is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. I felt I couldn't just glibly gloss over these words. So how are we going to understand them in today's world? And the answer I came up with, which may satisfy you or may not, is that we see some of it, but not all of it. We don't see the heavenly realm... We don't see the final consummation. And in fact, Jesus warned his followers that there would be great upheavals, uh, wars, rumours of wars, nation against nation, but that wasn't the end. And the book of Revelation presents us with images of a cosmic battle yet to be concluded. What we do see is the demonstration of God's power in the resurrection there is sufficient evidence to accept this as historical fact. And along with the crucifixion, it constitutes the cosmic event that changes everything. And I thought that maybe the way to think about the resurrection is like a keyhole through which we catch a glimpse of the world beyond. Something like this picture. And so against this background, it's interesting to note that Paul gives thanks for the Ephesian church because it demonstrates the power of God in action. For this reason, he says, ever since I heard about you, about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Someone has said that for Paul, the church was an outpost of the new humanity characterised by faith and love. Faith is trust in Jesus as saviour. It's a trust in the sacrificial death on the cross. It's a trust in God's forgiveness. So having been forgiven by God, we can and should forgive others. Having been loved by God, we can and should love others. And so that means that the usual divisions between people, the things that identity politics focuses on, have now been overcome. Or as Paul says in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And as I was thinking about this, it occurred to me that the world's power is destructive, look at Ukraine, divisive, look at the riots about race, and deceptive, 
We've never had so much fake news. Whereas God's power is creative, think about the resurrection. Unifying, think about the church and truthful. I wonder whether sometimes we just take forgiveness for granted and don't appreciate how important it is for our world. Because without forgiveness, past injustices can fester and demand vengeance. One of the stories that stands out for me is that of Serbia. In the Battle of Kosovo back in 1389, the Serbian prince Lazar was killed. It is said that Kosovo became a land of mourners. And Prince Lazar became a Serbian hero taught to children ever since. The Serbs tried to retrieve his remains, first from the Ottomans and later from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And on about the 500th anniversary of the death of Prince Lazar, a Serbian zealot shot Archduke Franz Ferdinand and that sparked off World War I. At about the 600th anniversary of the death of Prince Lazar, Slobodan Milosevic managed to retrieve the remains, which were then paraded around Serbia, and he said, now we will have our vengeance. And that led to the Yugoslav War. How are these historical wrongs, perceived or actual, going to be resolved? If we go by an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we'll all end up blind and toothless. The current trend to tear down statues of past important people is another demonstration of an inability to forgive. To accept that these people from the past might have been flawed, but still they made an immense contribution. In The Madness of Crowds, Douglas Murray has a reflection on forgiveness. He notes that in an age of social media, if someone posts something and it gets copied, then even if the original posting is removed, it is there forever to be dredged up, ignoring the original context and mood and used to demolish a person's character. How are we going to deal with the past? How are we going to find forgiveness? In the War on the West, Murray has a reflection on gratitude. He observes that where people are dissatisfied with their lot, that breeds resentment, and that means someone else is to blame and must provide recompense. And hence there's this desire to paint yourself as a victim. Murray talks about his good friend, Roger Scruton, and notes... In the last year of his life, the English philosopher Roger Scruton underwent a set of trials and misfortunes inflicted on him by others. The last thing he wrote was a reflection on that year of his life, what he had been through and all the terrible things that had happened to him. But he said, and these were the last words he published before his death, coming close to death, you begin to know what life means and what it means is gratitude. I recently finished reading Eugene Peterson's book, The Pastor, in which he documents his life as a pastor. He is the one who produced the version of the Bible called The Message. He set out 
to avoid glitzy techniques for attracting large congregations. He didn't aim for success, but for caring for the people in his charge. Not entertainment, but worship. Not programs, but community. Each person was valued for themselves, not for what they might be able to contribute. And I feel that Peterson would echo Paul's comments in thanking God for his own church. And he notes that men and women who are pastors in America today find that the vocation of pastor has been replaced by the strategies of religious entrepreneurs with business plans. And he says, I wonder if at the root of the problem is a cultural assumption that all leaders are people who get things done and make things happen. But while being a pastor certainly has some of these components, the pervasive element in our 2,000-year pastoral tradition is not someone who gets things done, but the person placed in the community to pay attention and call attention to what is going on right now between men and women with one another and with God. This kingdom of God that is primarily local, relentlessly personal and prayerful. He gives examples of the people who were welcomed into their church and the one that particularly struck me was about Wayne and Claudia who were both atheists but they wanted to bring their six children from different marriages to church to give them a moral foundation and they said they would come themselves. At the point in the service where they recited the creed, Wayne would start, I believe, and then he'd stop. Peterson observed that after six months, Wayne would say, I believe in God the Father Almighty. After they had attended for ten months, Wayne recited the complete creed and soon after both asked for baptism. A couple of years later, Claudia was diagnosed with aggressive breast cancer and within six weeks she was dead. Wayne lost his job and the bank foreclosed on their mortgage. The family was homeless but various church families offered to put up members of the family as long as required. For me, this was a real demonstration of the church in action, like the church in Ephesus, demonstrating faith and love and the power that the world needs to see. And I think we too can give thanks for the people with whom we worship, people with flaws, just like us, people characterised by faith and love and hopefully forgiveness. And so Paul prayed for the Ephesian church that they might grow in understanding of these cosmic events. I keep asking that our God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. We don't stand still in the Christian life. We need to grow. There's always more to understand, more to appreciate, more to absorb, 
more to put into practice. As they say, it's a matter of lifelong learning. We grow not just in the knowledge of facts, but also in the knowledge of a person, namely our Saviour Jesus. And even Paul considered that he had further to go, or as he said in Philippians 3, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. May that be our prayer as well.